It is great to have Mark and Linda with us today. Uh, what you give to missions uh, every month to missions here at Central uh, in part goes to help support them. And uh, we we're very honored to have you on our team here reaching the world for Christ. Uh, your, your missions giving also helps support quite a few Chi Alpha missionaries. And uh, we, Chi Alpha is the Assemblies of God Outreach to Secular Universities. And today happens to be uh, the National Chi Alpha Sunday. And we have quite a few missionaries here. And, and if you're a part of a Chi Alpha group, or if you're a Chi Alpha missionary, or you work on staff at National Chi Alpha, would you stand, please? We'd just like to cheer you guys on. All right. Appreciate you all. Good. Uh, Mark and Linda, I first met them years ago. They were, they were the area directors for the Sons of God World Mission in Central Asia, and they had lived for numbers of years in Pakistan, done many trips into Afghanistan, and uh, have given their lives to reaching Muslims. Uh, and then uh, later, Mark came and worked with, uh, he worked with the uh, of God Theological Seminary, among other places, in developing the Center for Islamic Studies, later became the president of Assembly of God Theological Seminary. And uh, Linda has had a missionary career as well, a powerful, gifted lady. Will you stand, Linda, for a moment? Linda. <laughs> Linda's the international director of Say Hello, Serving Muslim Women, and thank God for the amazing work you're doing. Now Linda and Mark uh, are working at Trinity Bible College and Graduate School. Mark is the Vice President of Institutional Innovation there and developing a master's program in Islamic studies and just continuing to make his impact. You have tons of friends here, Mark and Linda. We want to welcome you to Central. Let's welcome them again. Thank you, Dr. Bradford. What a joy to be here today and see so many familiar faces. Chi Alpha. I always said if I had a second life, I would do Chi Alpha, but I've done a lot of Chi Alpha, haven't I, Crystal? I've been involved in a lot of events with Chi Alpha, but what an incredible ministry to touch the world on our university campuses in the United States. And the impact that Chi Alpha made in Central Eurasia with starting one more friend in Kyrgyzstan at the Central Asian American University, and then they went on to Kazakhstan. So Chi Alpha just touches the world locally and literally globally as well. Thank you, Dr. Bradford, for the opportunity to be here today. It's just an absolute joy to see so many familiar faces. I wish I could see the faces online, but I can't, but I'm sure there are some familiar ones there as well. And this morning, I want to talk about, during this time, we focus on our global footprint as Central Assembly of God, a passage of scripture that's very familiar to all of us. It's in Acts chapter 17. And the Apostle Paul is in Athens, Greece, and he's at the Areopagus. And that's the place that the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers like to gather and talk about the latest ideas. So he's there, and probably something that's already coming to your mind is when Paul is there, he points out a statue because they were polytheists and they had a God for everything. But there is this statue, in case they missed a God, they had a statue to the unknown God. Remember that in the scriptures? in Acts chapter 17? Well, if you go beyond that passage and you get into the text where it talks about how God looks at the world today, 
And I've kind of built a theology of immigration around this. I really don't think that immigration is necessarily something that nations develop and do, but I really believe it's part of God's plan for us to reach the ends of the earth as well as reaching our own Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria as well. And if we go to Acts chapter 17, and as you have your Bibles, please take them out and look at the text with me, beginning at verse 24 of that chapter through 27. And here... Luke, it records what the Apostle Paul said. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from every one man, every nation of mankind, to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Let's pray. Father, we come here this morning to hear what you would have say to us through your word in this special focus, this mission's global footprint. And we ask, Lord, that you will give us ears to hear what your word is saying to us today. How you not only want us to engage and to go to all the nations of the earth, but Lord, how you also want us to engage the nations in our neighborhood. And so, Lord, we ask that you will give us ears to hear. And then, Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit, that spirit of Pentecost, to leave this place and to do exactly what your word says. So, Lord, we commit this time, we commit ourselves to you, whether we be in the sanctuary or watching online, and let us fulfill that which your word calls us to this day and the days before us. We ask in Jesus' strong and mighty name, amen. Pew Research says that today there are now 1.9 billion Muslims in the world today, 1.9 billion. There are approximately 2.5 billion Christians and they also say there's a chance that by 2050 that Islam as a religion will catch up to Christianity as well. Now that could happen in the natural, but I don't believe that's part of the Great Commission because God wants us to be reaching them and engaging them with the gospel. And as we look at Muslims moving into our communities, as we look at them around the world on the news, we certainly see that God is calling all of us to be agents of change in Muslims' lives. It's not merely a calling to pastors or to missionaries for us to go to the unreached and reach them. Because there are Muslims, even in Springfield, Missouri, that you are going to touch that a pastor and a missionary will never have any contact with. It could be at the grocery store. It could be at your place of employment. It could be standing in line to get on an airplane in your travel. The point is, is that God wants us all to truly be the Pentecostal people that he's called us to be, and that is to be heralds of the gospel, and especially to those who have never heard the message of Jesus Christ. As I was coming back and forth with Linda and our three kids as when we were area directors for Central Eurasia, every summer we would come back, and Linda and I have been out of countries like Pakistan and Afghanistan and Turkey and Azerbaijan, any stan you can think of, we've been there. <laughs> and as we would come back, I would be in contact with Muslims, just in the warp and woof of life. And I began talking to them, I'd be sharing them with them, and I'd take the opportunity to communicate the gospel with them, because no matter where I am, 
I'm to be a missionary. I'm to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't have to be in Pakistan to be a missionary. That's what we are. That's what we do. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. You know, it's so easy. Here I am, protected by the glorious freedoms of this country. Matter of fact, I have the right to be able to speak about my faith to others, and they have the right to talk to me about their faith as well. And so I thought, wow, you know, this is really shifting my perspective about missions. And I just began to develop this mantra that missions is not where, but whom. Because we have the opportunity to engage people no matter where we are in this city or around this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to share with you some stories, some stories that I've experienced, that I've heard about, people that I know and to encourage you, to motivate, to move you, not just by the stories themselves, but how God moves and works to those stories. And God wants to create a narrative in our lives as well to be able to share with other people as we communicate the good news of Christ. So let's begin in the United States. You know, I was doing a little research for a public lecture that I had to give for Trinity Bible College and Graduate School, the Herman G. Johnson Lecture, and I spoke on Islam in rural America. So I got in and dived into some research and found out where the first official mosque as a facility was built in the United States. Now, we may think initially that could have been a place like New York City, right? Or perhaps it was Chicago, Illinois. Maybe Los Angeles. No, <laughs> the first mosque ever built in the United States was in Ross, North Dakota, near the Canadian border in the northwest part of that state. And if you look at this slide, you can see that older looking building in the black and white. That is actually the first mosque built in 1929 by a Syrian immigrant who came here in 1902, who took advantage of the Homestead Act, along with a lot of Ukrainians and Norwegians and Germans and Swedes, and they came here to, for a better life. Well, this Syrian happened to be in the bunch, too, with his family. And so some other Muslims came as well, and they developed this mosque. Well, that mosque now is long gone. I think it was torn down finally in 1979, and that's a new facility that was put up on that property by a wealthy Muslim. But there are no Muslims in the area. No Muslims go there. But in the theology of Muslims, in their religion, Islam, is the idea that wherever there was a mosque, that will always be a place where a mosque is to be. So they carry through on that theology. But often we think of Muslims being places that are far, far from us when really they are right here. They are in our midst. And even in Springfield, Missouri, we see a growing number of Muslims in our community. I have a regular visit that I make, if not two, three, four times a year to the Islamic Center of Springfield. And if you go east on Division, just as you get to the northwest corner of the airport, you'll see, I should say the northeast corner of the airport, you'll see that there is an open field there, but across the street from the airport, it says the Islamic Center of Springfield. That's the mosque for Muslims here in this city. What's ironic about that is that that space on the airport property right across the street from the mosque is where the Quorum Farm was, and in that living room of the Quorum Farm is where Central Assembly of God was started. So right across from the mosque, right across from there also is the Buddhist temple of Springfield. So that's like the most interreligious corner in Springfield, Missouri, right there going east on division. But this church has ties to that particular geographic location. And so when I go to the mosque with my students from AGTS, 
I take them there, and the purpose is to expose them. Some of them have never met a Muslim, let alone been at a mosque on Friday for what they call Juma prayers. And Friday around 1 o'clock is the time when Muslims go to mosques to worship. And so we go there, and I tell them, look, go there, pray. We don't practice their prayers, but just engage. After the Juma prayers are over, there'll be a communal time. So just build relationships. Say hello, like what Linda's ministry is all about. Just say hello. That's how hard it is to meet a Muslim. All you do is say hello. And so one particular day, I was there with one of my classes, and I did the same thing. I got up from the time they had their prayer time, and I was looking around for men in the mosque that I didn't know because that's where I like to go to meet Muslim men, to build a relationship with them so that I can speak about Jesus into their lives. And so I looked over and I saw this young man and his name was Abdul Rahman. So I went over to him and I didn't know him at that time, but I said to him, hi, what's your name? My name is Mark. Now that's how hard it is to meet a Muslim. And we're inside a mosque, right? And he said, hi, my name is Abdul Rahman. I said, you know, I've never seen you here before. Are you new to Springfield? He said, no, actually, I've been here for three years. I've been studying for my master's in public administration. I said, oh, really? I said, well, I've never seen you at this mosque before. I said, well, how much longer do you have here in Springfield? And he said, well, I have three more weeks, and then I'm going to head back to Saudi Arabia. And in my mind, I thought, you know, he may think to himself that God brought him to the United States so that he could get his master's degree in public administration at Missouri State University but from a kingdom of God perspective, from the perspective of the scriptures that every follower of Jesus is to have, the real reason why God brought Abdul Rahman, the eternal reason why God brought Abdul Rahman to Springfield, Missouri, is so that he could be engaged by someone who is a follower of Jesus to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. That's the ultimate reason why he's come to this nation. And I said, you know, I'm sure you're busy with papers and with tests, but would you be willing to have a lunch with me, and it'll be on me. I'd love to take you to lunch and get to know you better. Muslims love relationship. They love engagement like that. I wish we had time to bring him into our home because that would have been even more ideal, but I'm thinking he needs to get back to the school, so this is what we're going to do. So he meets me for lunch at the Panera on National Avenue. Most of you know where that is. So we're sitting there with our food, and he asks me a question that I've never, ever had a Muslim ask me anywhere in the world. He said, Mark, as a Christian, you believe we have a sinful nature. I said, that's right. I do believe we have a sinful nature. And then I said to him, Abdul, as a Muslim, you believe that we do not have a sinful nature. And he said, that's right. And then he said, what makes you believe that we have a sinful nature, Mark? And I said to him, well, Abdul, first of all, uh, my holy book, uh, the Bible says that we have a fallen or a sinful nature, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there's no one righteous, no, not one. And he said, uh, okay. I said, but the second reason to me is even a, a bit more profound because it's really seen in life. He said, well, what's that? I said, the second reason I believe we have a sinful nature are toddlers. <laughs> right? Toddlers. We have five wonderful grandchildren, five grandsons, four grandsons and one granddaughter. And we love to post things about them. We love to quote what they say. I mean, they're so cute and adorable, they couldn't be sweeter. I mean, the adage is true, if you could have your grandchildren first, you would never have had your own children, right? And so I said, but think about it. 
Think about the way they behave. He said, that, but they're children, Mark. Don't you expect children to act that way? I said, that's right. But think about it. You know, no, mine. They start hitting each other. They're totally irrational. They could be laughing one second, and they're crying and melting down the next. Why is that? I said, it has to be something inside of them more than just their thoughts or their maturity or their rationale. There's something inside of them that's fallen. I said, we believe they go to heaven, but why do they behave that way? I said, let me ask you a question, and here's where the Holy Spirit leads us. Because not ever having been asked that question before by a Muslim, I thought to myself, God, how do you want to speak to him? And the Lord said, speak to him about jihad. So I said to him, I said, you know, Abdul Rahman, do you do everything that Allah wants you to do? He said, no, I, I don't. And he just stared at his food. I said, let me ask you another question because I can identify with that. I, I don't do everything. I, I, do, I don't do everything God wants me to do. And then I said, do you do things that Allah would not want you to do? And he looked at his food again. He said, yes, I, I do things that I know Allah doesn't want me to do. And I said, hey, I'm with you. All of humanity is in the same boat. We do things we know we shouldn't do. We don't do the things we know that we should do. I said, we have a writer in our holy book called Paul. And he says, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I know that I should do. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. I said, Abdul, what you have happening inside of you is the greater jihad. And he looked at me, his eyes got big. He says, you understand this meaning of jihad. And you see, in jihad, we often associate jihad, what we hear about on 9-11. We just celebrated the 20th anniversary. We were living in Pakistan during 9-11. The Al-Qaeda bases were just 200 miles from our home. And so we understand what that means, but that's the lesser jihad. But the greater jihad that I was talking to Abdul about, I said, the greater jihad is happening within you, Abdul, and that greater jihad for the Muslim is the heart of the Muslim and their desire to do the will of God, to fulfill the will of God in their life. And the word jihad means struggle. So the struggle within. I said, what you have happening inside is the greater jihad. That's why you have a sinful nature, because if you did not have a sinful nature, Abdul, you would do everything Allah wanted you to do, and you would never do anything Allah did not want you to do. And he looked at me and he said, have you read the Quran? I said, yes, I've, I've read the Quran through twice. And by the way, I do read the Bible through every year, so just to make sure that everybody knows that here. <laughs> and he said, I'm ashamed of myself. He goes, I've been in the United States for three years and I've never read the Bible. And in my mind, I thought, no, Abdul, <laughs> I'm ashamed because you've been in the United States for three years and no one in Springfield, Missouri has given you a Bible. I reached into my computer bag and what I had brought with me was Dr. Sobi Malik's translation of the Bible in Arabic. I pulled it out of my computer bag, and I said, here, I brought this for you. I want you to have it. Will you read it? He took it out of my hands with respect. He says, I will take this Bible back to Saudi Arabia, and I will read it. 
You see, the opportunity we have in this nation to just reach out and say hello and to build a relationship just over lunch and to be thinking about how we can be used of the Holy Spirit to speak truth into someone's life. And as a Pentecostal people, we believe the Spirit leads us in the here and now, and He will tell us exactly what to do. As the Scripture says, He will bring to mind the things that He would have us to say that we haven't even thought of. If we put ourselves in a place to be a people that are used of Him to be able to engage those who are lost without the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's called us to go beyond borders. He's telling us that missions isn't merely where but whom. Yes, we celebrate and we have and we do go to the ends of the earth, literally. But the ends of the earth who are also coming into our Jerusalem, we are called just as much to engage and reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means you and me together. We don't leave it up to professionals. We leave it up to people who we are called out to be, followers of Jesus. So let's go beyond borders past the United States and let's go to the Islamic Republic of Iran. And I'd like to introduce you to a young man by the name of Mobin. And Mobin was a young man, a Shiite Muslim, who wanted to become a Mufi, mullah, who was like an Islamic clergyman. He had plans to go to Saudi Arabia, but those plans didn't work out. And so he decided that he was going to go to school in London, so he did. He was attending university in London, and a young Christian woman got to know him and her relationship with him, he began talking, uh, she began talking to him about Jesus. And she talked to him about Jesus. He's like, well, this woman talking to me, that's not really right. And she's telling me about Jesus. And I don't know that I really want Jesus in my life. I don't know if this is right. And so he decided, no, I, I, you know, he cut off the relationship. And then he made his way back to Iran. When he made his way back to Iran, he thought, well, maybe I should become a mullah again. And so he went to Saudi Arabia and on Hajj, his holy pilgrimage, he was out in an area of the city of Mecca, and he, they were having public amputations of legs and arms for, on children who had broken the law, broken Sharia law. And he heard their screaming, and he heard the wails of their mothers, and he could not get that sound out of his head. And he said at the same time, he was thinking about this Jesus, this God of love that this woman in London had told him about. And he thought to himself, I don't know what's going on, but I want to get out of Iran. I want to get out of Saudi Arabia. And so eventually, Mobin made his way to Vienna, Austria. So he went to Vienna, Austria as a refugee. And as he was there, he came across a woman at a train station in Vienna. And she looked at him, and she noticed, and this had to be the Spirit's prompting, she noticed that he seemed like he was lost. And so she went up to him, and she said, do you know what you're doing? Do you know where you're going? Sounds like the angel in Genesis 16. Where have you come from and where are you going? And he said, well, not really. And she said, well, where are you from? And she, he said, well, I'm, I'm from Iran. She goes, oh, I know a lot of Iranians in Vienna. Matter of fact, we have about 100 Iranians that attend our church. Would you like to meet them? And he said, well, I would love to meet them. She goes, yeah, it'd be great. You could be with people of your first language, your first culture. And so she said, I'll meet you on Sunday morning. We'll take this very train to the church, Vienna Christian Center, and I'll introduce you to them. So she takes him to church, and he begins to meet these Iranians. And he starts to attend church. He's there for three months. And what happens? Over the period of time of being loved by believers, 
of meeting other Muslims that have come and put their faith in Jesus in that church, Mobin decides one Sunday morning he's going to give his life to Christ. And this bottom picture here is a picture of him going to the altar. Somebody happened to take that picture. But can you imagine coming to Jesus Christ, a refugee, not knowing where he's going, but reached out to by someone who felt prompted by the Spirit just to say hello to him and bring him into the body of Christ that he could come to know as Savior and God. About three weeks later, Pastor Larry Henderson, who's the pastor of Vienna Christian Center, told me that three weeks after he came to faith, without even being taught about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Mobin was baptized in the Holy Spirit in his room at his, where he was living, empowered by the Spirit of God, just on God's will. And with the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is this, it is to be empowered to be a witness. And Larry says that Mobin now is the greatest evangelist to Muslims that he has in that church. Open doors, beyond borders. Missions is not where, but whom. Think about what God is doing today like never before. I was watching BBC News one morning, and this byline went underneath the screen, and it said, Iranians in the Netherlands, that's Holland, are converting to Christianity by the thousands. They're coming into context of freedom like Europe and like the United States. And here in this context of freedom, there is the glorious opportunity for us as the church to engage them and to reach out to them with the good news of Jesus Christ. Larry told me another story that I want to share with you this morning, and this is particularly profound. The man's name is Jamal. He has another name. Actually, you can hear it in a video that I'm going to show you, but we call him Jamal. And Jamal was in Syria. And he was with the secret police, with the Syrian government. And ISIS has been fighting in Syria. And ISIS exploded a bomb in Damascus one day. And that bomb killed his mother, his father, his wife, and his three children. Jamal decided, I'm getting out of here. I'm sick of this. And so he came as a refugee like Mobin, and he made his way to Vienna. And he started coming to the church. Somebody invited him, and he decided to come. And so Pastor Larry Henderson connected with him, started talking to him, and gave him a Bible. And he asked Jamal one day, he said, Jamal, so you've been reading the Bible, you've been coming to church. Tell me, so where are you with Jesus? He said, well, Pastor, I'm 75% for Muhammad, and I'm 25% for Jesus. That's the way it goes. It's a process. It's not an immediate decision with Muslims. They process into the kingdom of God. So a few months later, he asked them, Jamal, where are you? He said, well, I'm about 50% for Jesus, and I'm about 50% for Muhammad. He said, okay, okay, keep reading, keep coming, keep learning, keep growing. Finally, he said to him, Jamal, where are you? Well, I'm 75% I'm for Jesus and 50% for Muhammad, right? He's processing into the kingdom. That's why we want them to come. That's why we want to participate in their lives. We want them to experience love and action. They want them to experience the great commandment before they experience the great commission. It's all about belonging first and then believing. And we want them to believe, belong, and then they will believe. And so finally, he said, where are you, Jamal? He said, I'm 100% for Jesus and nothing for Muhammad. And he gave his life to Christ. Larry provided me a wonderful video I'd like to share with you, and it's Jamal's baptism. Listen to what 
this Syrian refugee says. Let's go ahead and play it, if you would. And these are all refugee Muslims at Vienna Christian Center being baptized because they've embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord. I believe God wants to do that in every church in Springfield, Missouri as well. He's bringing the unreached even into this community. And the purpose is, the purpose is not just for a better life, not just for education, not just for safety, not just for Costco or Sam's, but it's so that you, 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 and I can build relationships and see them come to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. We will never reach the world if we leave it just up to pastors and missionaries. It takes a global church being mobilized to engage the unreached. I had the opportunity to speak at Salem People's Church in Oregon. I did the teaching in this joint Sunday school, and this elderly lady came up to me afterwards, and she said, Mark, what, what happens when a Muslim woman accepts Jesus? And I said, well, it all depends what family she comes from. It all depends where she lives. You know, there's a lot of variables, but according to the Hadith and the teachings of the prophet, supposedly she is to be put to death just like a man is supposed to be put to death if they leave Islam. I said, why do you ask? She said, well, let me introduce myself. My name is Thelma, and I'm an 80-year-old widow. I said, well, nice to meet you. She said, yesterday, it was yesterday, she said, I was at... Home Depot looking for tax. And so I went down the aisle where you get the tax, and as I turned the corner, I looked down the aisle. At the very end of the aisle, there was this young woman dressed in black from head to toe, pushing a baby carriage away from me. And as I looked at her, the Holy Spirit said to me, that woman wants to know about Jesus. So she said, I had my little Pomeranian dog in the satchel, under my arm, and I made my way down the aisle at Home Depot, and I went up to the young mother, and I tapped her on the shoulder, and she turned around, and here was this young Muslim mother and her baby in the carriage. And she looked a little startled, Thelma said. And then Thelma just simply said to her what the Holy Spirit said to say, excuse me, would you like to know about Jesus? And the young Muslim woman, the young mother said, yes, I want to know about Jesus. Tell me about him. And in the aisle of a Home Depot in Salem, Oregon, she led that young Muslim woman to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Don't let the gray hair fool you. The grayer you get in the Muslim world, the more you have to say. You're not elderly. You're of the elders and you are worth listening to. What does God want to do in and through us? All of the above. We don't even have to pray about it. <laughs> oh, yes, we should be in prayer. But whether we should engage or not, the text clearly says we live out the great commandment to love God and to love people, and we fill out the great, fulfill the great commission. We go into all the world, including Springfield, Missouri, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever you are viewing from. Five reasons why Muslims are coming to faith today as never before. Let me share these with you because these are the things we teach to missionaries. These are the things we teach to graduate in graduate school. 
But these are the things that anybody can do. <laughs> it's what anybody can do. Why are Muslims coming to faith today? A survey was done with 700 Muslims that left Islam and became followers of Jesus. And here are the top five reasons in order how these Muslims came to Christ. Number one, a relationship with a Christian. So build a relationship. Say hello. Reach out to them. The Great Commission and Luke 10, 2 says that we are to go into the harvest fields. We don't wait for the harvest field to come to us. We go where they are. We engage. So building a relationship with a Christian is the first reason these former Muslims gave. The second reason is that a Christian gave them a Bible. Just like with Abdul Rahman at Panera Bread on National Avenue, just find a Bible in their first language. And through the relationship, you'll find out what their first language is and get a Bible in their first language and give it to them. This is the only inspired book on the planet. And it will speak for itself as well as speak through you. Number three, prayer, signs, wonders, and miracles. We are a Pentecostal people. We not only believe the empowering of the Holy Spirit is for us to share our faith, but we believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're active today. And when you pray with a Muslim, pray in the name of Jesus. Let them know when a miracle is performed, when a sign or a wonder takes place, that it was none other than Jesus Christ who brought it about and none other. So pray with them in the name of Jesus. And don't be afraid to pray. Thirdly, fourthly, coming to understand that God is a God of love because when you read the Quran, you find that Allah is a very transcendent, distant God. He's not personal. Muslims say that Allah is as close as your jugular vein, but yet there's no personal relationship with Allah. But when they read about Jesus and they hear about Jesus, they realize how intimate God wants to be with us. He loves us with a perfect Father's love. And then lastly, Muslims are increasingly disillusioned with Islam. The internet has opened up the whole world to Muslims in small Pakistani villages. And in that world opening up, they're seeing things the way they really are. And they're searching like never before. And God wants to use you, and he wants to use me, whether it's in Springfield, or Pakistan, or Vienna, or Malaysia, or China, or Indonesia, to be his conduit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God bless you, Dr. Bradford.